Hi there, I'm Jay Goldstein, Head of Program at Petrie. I'm your host and I'm happy to welcome you to our podcast. For those of you who don't know us, Petrie develops companies attacking the world's largest problems at the frontier of biology and engineering. This podcast is about spotlighting inspiring founders who are innovating, improving human health and sustainability. Today's episode is focused on new tools for biotech. We'll talk to Emily LeProust, CEO and co-founder of Twist Bioscience. Twist is a leading and rapidly growing synthetic biology company that has developed a disruptive DNA synthesis platform to industrialize the engineering of biology. In this episode, we're going to learn about Emily's start as a founder, we'll take a deep dive into the science, we'll explore its impact on the field, and finally, we'll get three concrete tips from Emily to help founders, perhaps like you, building at the intersection of biology and engineering. Emily, it is great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's talk first a little bit about your roots as a founder and where you grew up. So I grew up in uh, in France, in uh, in in Tours. It's the center of France. So it's a part of France where there is no accent. So it's kind of the Midwest of France. So the irony is that in French, I have no accent, but in English, I have <laughs> some accent. Looking back. Was there something that happened when you were a kid that you're like, yeah, that's how I became a founder. Like now that I look back on it, I can see why these experiences led to me becoming a founder. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. My, my parents had a number of businesses and um, one of their business was uh, having a, a, an electronic store, uh, kind of like a Best Buy. And um, uh, when I was a kid, that's when the VCRs came out and, and, None of my parents and employees knew how to sell the VCR because it was more technical. And on a Saturday morning, I will come in and I'll be the salesperson. I was 12 and I'll be the salesperson selling VCR. And it turns out I was really good at selling VCRs. And I think I think that my love for sell, uh, for selling uh, came, came from there. You need to love the sales process when, when you're a founder. So I think... Uh, Without that experience of of, uh, of selling VCRs, it, it may have been harder. On. And I know I'm dating myself because a lot of your funders don't even know what a VCR is. Uh, I do know what a VCR is. I'm aging myself too here. So um, curious about what you studied in school and how that set you on a path as well. Uh, so in, in school, um, in France, it's a special uh, system where it's selection by math. And so if you're good at math, uh, a lot of doors open. And then my first two years of uh, university, actually, it was a special program where you just do math and physics. That's it. And then at the end, you take a national exam. And based on where you rank, you choose the school you want to go to. And uh, so I ended up, um, I did a lot of math, lots of physics for two years. And then I, I ended up going to a chemistry school. And so for my undergrad, I ended up uh, with a chemistry uh, degree. And how did you get passionate about DNA? Hey, it's interesting. Um, then I wanted to go to the U.S. to learn English. My, my English was not great at the time. And so actually my last year of a master in France uh, was my first year. Actually, I did, it, I did that, that last year of my master in France in Houston. And that became actually my, my first year of PhD. Uh, the, the goal was to come back, to go back to France after a year or two. And you know, I've, I've been here 25 years. And so at the university of where I was in Houston, I had to pick a professor and um, there was a lot of well, professors, many different fields. And one of them was focused on DNA. Uh, I'm not sure I knew how to spell DNA at the time, um, but that was not my passion. But uh, I was, 
attracted with to that professor for her work ethic and and um, uh, basically she told me that if I worked hard I would not have to do a postdoc so that that was a selling point for me uh, and I did work really hard and it turned out that she was doing DNA so you're 21 22 years old you make the biggest decision of your life uh, it was not very well thought out uh, but uh, it turned out great she was really good she was really demanding really hard as a professor but she was amazing in, in the end I, I learned a lot from her and, and from that experience, but I kind of got into DNA by accident, I would, I would say. Let's have Tony join us now so we can talk a little bit more about Twist and talk about the breakthrough science behind it. Tony? Hey, thanks, Jay. Uh, so Twist developed new DNA synthesis technology. Can you talk about just what the time period was at the in the time period when Twist was started, what the current state of DNA synthesis was? Yeah, so um, when we started, was uh, starting to think about about it uh, was in 2012, and at the time, uh, you could probably buy your gene for about a dollar a base, and prices were were coming down, but everybody to make genes were using the 96 well plate, and so that insight was that you know 96 well plate you can make. Uh, PCR primer. But when you ask people, when is the last time you ran out of a PCR primer? And the answer is never. Uh, you get a PCR primer, it's a lifetime supply. You go back to that tube as long as you want, you have so much DNA. So their insight was doing the 96 well plate synthesis was very wasteful uh, because you were making way too much DNA. And so the idea was to miniaturize uh, instead of uh, uh, doing oligosynthesis in a 50 microliter format, you could go to 10 picoliter, so a very small amount of, of volume on silicon, and then release the, the oligos from the silicon chip, uh, pull them together into a, a 500 nanoliter droplet, uh, do molecular biology on, on that droplet, uh, uh, assemble the oligos, um, do amplification, purification, quantification, normalization, cloning even, and then eventually be able to do a, a per, send a, a perfect gene to the customer. So that was the, that the idea was if you miniaturize, um, you'll get a lot more throughput and much lower cost. And that's what happened. What do you see are some of the challenges to solve in DNA synthesis and some of the emerging technologies like enzymatic DNA synthesis? Yeah, so I think our customers or the market, uh, they want um, longer DNA. Uh, they want cheaper DNA. They want faster DNA. I think that those are the, the three main axes. And so we are moving in that direction. When we launched Twist, the longest uh, gene we sold was 1.8 kb. Now we sell 5 kb. When we launched, we were frankly we were we were slow. We it took 30 days to make a gene. Now the average is 11 to 14 days. We've announced that it's going to be even f faster in the future. So we are on our own, constantly pushing, uh, moving the bar. Enzymatic chemistry has the potential to help in that direction. It may not be cheaper. Um, I think it's going to be probably harder to be cheaper, but uh, it could be faster, it could be longer. And my view is that it's just a question of time until that happens. And uh, the good news is that we are not a chemical company. We are a hardware and software company. And so our platform is compatible with enzymatic chemistry. So as soon as there's one that works, we're on record to say that we want to be the, the, the first customers to, to port it on our, on our platform. 
I mean, speaking of advancements in the technology, one of the things that attracted a, a lot of attention, I think in about 2016, or at least in the past few years, was the announcements around Human Genome Project, how far we are from the limits of being able to do like genome scale synthesis and engineering, and what some of the challenges will be there, um, as well as some of the implications, uh, unlocking new opportunities, as well as you know societal implications as well for doing synthesis at that scale. Uh, very interesting uh, project, I and mean, we we'll, we love to to participate, and and we are sponsors of it. The hard part is right now. So at least we make five KB. Uh, you can assemble those into twenty KB, hundred KB. Uh, some people do two hundred fifty type KB, and then a group of vendors they they went all the way to building the the full the full bacteria two megabase. So it is possible for bacteria to to do it. It's just super expensive. So the uh, one milestone to, to get is to lower the cost so that it becomes affordable to build a, a genome or chromosome. Nine cents a base is great, but it, you know, at, at three billion bases, uh, it's still a $300 million project. So that, that's way, way too expensive. So cost has to come down. And then to, to boot a, a human genome, there's a little bit more difficulty. You have to deal with the methylation. So you have to deal with the um, the, uh, the chromatin uh, structure where the DNA has to, has to roll around chromatins. So there's additional uh, technical difficulties beyond just the cost, but uh, there could be some, some great scientific ad uh, advances from, from that. For instance, if you could create a, an avatar for a person to test drugs or test different models, uh, that, that could be very useful. Uh, for instance, in, in, um, when you sequence people with cancer just around the BRCA gene, just one gene, there's lots of mutations. People don't know what, what, what they mean. And so there's experiments that are being done uh, in vitro at the gene level. What happens if I change those mutations to understand the function? But uh, if you could do it on a, on a, a full genome level, uh, you, could, you would have a, a better understanding. One of the things that I thought was really surprising to me was the implications in DNA data storage. And recently, Twist has gotten involved as well. Can you can you talk about where you see the applications of, of DNA data storage and maybe what some of the exciting developments in, in that field around DNA synthesis have been? Yeah, no, so I'm, I'm very excited about, about uh, DNA data storage. The, uh, the, the idea came a very long time ago from myself. I was on, on the paper with Nick Goldman in, in Nature in, in 2013. Uh, and when we are pitching twist in 2013, we are talking about data storage. And frankly, the investor response was, it's going to take 10 years, so don't forget about it. But after we had funded, we always did a little bit of work on it. It was not a big investment. It was I don't know, a quarter million dollars, half a million dollar investment a year on it. But it, it moved the ball forward. And now, eight years later, it's only a few years away. So they were right that it was 10 years away. But if we had not done a little bit of work along the way, we, we will still be two, 10 years away, but instead we are just a few years away. And really what excites me about the end of the data storage is there's a huge need in storage to archive stuff. And it used to be humans uh, building data. Um, you know, we, in, in, we would make a word file or a Photoshop file or we'll take a picture or a movie. It was human created. And now we are moving into an area where data is created by machines um, and so the, the data is just exploding and we have to archive it. And, and the cost is just, is just very big, even for highly valuable content like uh, movies or TV series, uh, all the 
all the, the shoots that was made during during the during the making of the movie. It's super expensive to keep all of that, and they don't want to throw it away. And so there is, there is a need for storage solution that has a lower total cost of ownership, because if you archive data. Yeah, you put it on a hard drive first, but then every few years you have to move it from one hard drive to the next, to the next, to the next, and that cost of ownership just just balloons. I think we made a we showed a slide where ten petabyte of data stored over a hundred years on Amazon Glacier is is one million dollars. Right, so it costs a lot of money over a hundred years. But if you could make DNA uh, the same price of a hard drive on the first time. You never have to move it again, and so the total cost of ownership stays the same. And so DNA is the opportunity that, because it's permanent, to lower the total cost of ownership. And and um, we think that once we can launch our, our product, where we are the same price as a hard drive, there'll be there'll be a, a strong pickup in in um, in revenues there. Can you talk about how you thought about biosecurity at Twist? or as the broader, the DNA synthesis and, or biotechnology industry should be thinking about it. I'm glad you mentioned it. Every invention is a coin. There's a good use and a bad use. And you know, uh, for instance, dynamite. It's amazing. You can build tunnels with dynamite. It's, it's changed the world, but uh, you can kill people. And so we're very serious about the whole use of DNA and biosecurity. And so we, we try to be on the bleeding edge of biosecurity, where um, we not only screen the sequences, but we also screen the customer. And so if we get an order for an Ebola sequence from the CDC, you know, we'll ship it. But if it's an Ebola sequence from for, to be shipped in a PO box in North Korea, we won't. Even though uh, that, that, that's the industry standard, we're trying to move it uh, further, where we should screen oligos, we should uh, make sure that the desktop synthesizer have uh, screening capabilities. And so we, we try to be thought leader and, and move the industry forward. And, and we try to share what we, what, what we do with industry so that everybody else does it. So we are trying to do the best. That being said, we have to remember that nature is the biggest bioterrorist. And we are seeing it right now. We're in a pandemic. That was not creating a lab. It's just nature. And before it was Zika, and before it was Ebola, and before it was SARS, and before it was MERS, it's just that that the power of evolution of nature is just so big. That's what we should also be uh, more worried about. And so we need to do surveillance of nature such that we can catch those things early. And uh, yes, as much as we are very focused on biosecurity, as much as we do the best we can, we also need to remember that the biggest threat is not going to come from a student in a garage. It will come from nature. One of the things I wanted to ask you about as well is about some of the products that Twist released to support research into SARS-CoV-2 and, and the general pandemic response. I know you have products in, in both research and uh, and actually we're developing therapeutics as well. Can you can you talk about either of those products? So the, I mean, the, the, the pandemic has been very bad for society, but in a way we, we built Twist for that. Almost all of our product lines are, are useful. On the, the gene side, uh, we have a lot of genes that are being used, made to discover and develop vaccines and antibodies. For instance, Vanderbilt used thousands of our genes and, and six antibodies are now in clinical trials with AstraZeneca. On the diagnostic side, our panels for, for COVID, but uh, with our COVID kits and panels, you can sequence the entire 
sequence of, of the virus. And, and that's, that's important to follow virus evolution over time. And, you know, with all the variants coming out, it, it's definitely front of mind. And then we, we also uh, launched synthetic controls. Because what we realized at the beginning of the pandemic is everybody was developing those RT-PCR tests, but you need a positive control to develop it. Um, and they will have to use uh, inactivated virus. So you have to grow the virus. It's super uh, dangerous, very expensive. So what we made is we made the, uh, the virus in the tube, uh, all 29 KB of uh, RNA sequences. Uh, we cut it in five pieces, so it's, it's safe. You can brush your teeth with it. Don't do it, but you could. And that has been actually very useful for, for diagnostic uh, companies developing tests and then for customers using COVID testing every day in their lab to have a positive controls every, every few samples to make sure it worked. And at last but not least, uh, like Tony, like you said, with us, we developed our own antibodies against COVID uh, that are super potent. And uh, actually doing it has been very useful for us to, to convince um, pharma partners that our, our drug discovery platform is actually quite, quite uh, performance and, and advanced. Emily, I'd love to talk about impact with you. What is the grand vision for the kind of impact you want to have with Twist? We think DNA is the most important molecule of the 21st century. And um, uh, with the DNA that we deliver, we're going to enable our customer to deliver health and sustainability. So we're not, we're not the heroes. You know, our customers are the heroes. We are the enablers. We are the Robins uh, to their Batman. And it's happening. We are seeing that some chemicals that used to be made from oil are now being made from fermentation of, of sugar. That's more sustainable. It's a slow cheaper. We are seeing that with COVID therapies and, and vaccines and, and, and facility controls are, are being used in the fact of COVID. So it is working, but we are, it's only the beginning. And I'm, I'm glad you talk about impact because impact is one of the four uh, guiding principles at, at Twist. And, and we want everybody in the company to have a little bit of impact every day. And when you multiply that by 500 people, by 365 days every year, we are a very different companies and the, the impact that we have on our customers and hopefully on the, on the health and stability of the planet grows every day. What are the other three principles? I'm curious. Yeah, the, the other three are, the first one is, is great. If people don't, don't have great, they should go work for our competition. Because if you do something that's easy, everybody else can do it. You don't have a, a long-term defensible position. So we, we, we go for the hard stuff and, and you need to have grit to, to do it. So the first one. Uh, the second is impact. Uh, someone comes to me, I always say, what can I do for you? We are here in service of each other and in service of the, our customers. We love to serve people. That, that's our goal. And then the last one is trust. And so we have to trust each other in the team. But to go back to Tony's point, it's a dual use technology. Our customers, uh, society at large, needs to trust that we are doing the right thing. And so trust trust is, is top of mind in biosecurity, in, in, in what we do. We want to be trustworthy uh, partners. So let's talk about some concrete tips for founders now. I've heard you talk about this idea of servant leadership a great deal. I'd love to hear your perspective about what does it mean to be a great leader? You have to choose the leader you want to be, right? And so we chose at Twist to use servant leadership. Uh, it works for us. 
you can use a, an army analogy and you can be the top general and that works too. It's, it's a different culture that is possible. You can run your company like a circus and everybody's a clown type thing. It can work as well. I'm sure, I'm sure it does. I think a servant leadership is great because it attracts really great people. And so I often use the, the image of a boat analogy that if I want the boat, uh, and I ask people, build me this boat with this color, build it this way with this, I get a boat. But if I give people the, the, the longing for the high seas, they're going to build their own boat. And 100% guarantee that boat is going to be better than my boat. And so, uh, so my goal is to provide a vision of twist, uh, but then bring the best people on board, create the, um, the culture where people can build their vision of, of the boat Sometimes it's hard, right? Because you have to let go. I would not have done it this way, but in the end, it, it's better. And so I expect everybody in the company to, to do that uh, to each other. What can I do for you? Uh, and that creating that that's where we are at the service of each other. We are building something together. So that that's, that's important. And then um, related to that, it's good also to have one outside enemy. I really want to know who your enemy is now. Oh, you don't want to know? I do want to know. <laughs> Don't worry, they know. They know. <laughs> and that, that helps get everybody so motivated. The opposite of that, where you have to be very careful, is you cannot let have internal enemies. It can't happen. If, if one group has an enemy inside the company, either one of them has to go or both of them have to go, but you cannot have internal enemies. It has to be external. And when you do that, it gets everybody super pumped up. Let's talk about your business strategy. See, Ginko was a, was a great partner. They they have an insatiable appetite for DNA, and the good news we can make a lot of it. So it was a, a match made in heaven. I think we we grew nicely together. At some point, uh, there were fifty percent of our revenue, which was a bit uncomfortable for our investors. But um, we've grown faster than their orders, which makes sense. And so now uh, they're they're at the at, at the stage where they, it's it's a great. It's a great partnership, but uh, I think our investors are a little bit less, less worried. And then in terms of our guiding principles for the business strategy, I think the, the first aspect is kind of the old joke of why do people rob banks? Well, that's where the money because that's where the money is, right? And so be very clear of where the money is. You could create a new market, but that's... It's possible, like the iPhone is a new market. There was no smartphone before, but that's a lot harder. We find that our strategy is more to find existing market where the money is. And then we, we go in, we, frankly, we're trying to wreck it uh, with a disruptive offer and then take it all. So that, that's kind of the, the first strategy. And then, and then the, second, the second one is uh, related to that is once you go in, you go away with overwhelming force. Like you, you play to win. If you go with a half measures, you're not committed. It, it, so either you do it or you, or, or you don't. I think a lot of companies are, are focused on premium pricing. How can I get the premium pricing? Um, to me, it's, it's, a wrong, it's a wrong approach. I'm more interested in, in premium profit. So if I can lower the if I can lower the price twenty percent, but the, the gross margin the gross margin dollars that you get grows forty percent. Well, do that, you know, and it's kind of the analogy of uh, if you make a, the, the first big flat screen TV, you know, the amazing flat screen, super big, you know, the first one is $5 million and I can sell one or two. 
especially with my experience selling VCRs. But if you can lower the cost of that amazing TV to $500, you sell a billion. And so that premium pricing of $5 million, it's, it's, it's the wrong focus. Uh, you're, you're better off selling a lot more at the lower price. So that, that's probably a, a third principle uh, at twist. Think about back to when you were just starting out. Who did you try to get to be on your advisory board or give you good advice? And in addition, now that you are on the other side, how do you like folks to interact and engage with you as a potential advisor? Yeah, so my approach back then was to avoid the, the formalism of uh, advisory board and all this. I think at least what works for me is I came in, I, I, I've never been a CEO before, I didn't know what to do it. And so I thought that um, just talking to people that had been doing it uh, would, would be useful. So I, I, I phoned as many CEOs as I, as I knew. I, you know, I tried not to be a pest and I tried to make it short and very focused. But um, I got a lot of amazing advice that way that really helped me. And it's not that I always did what they told me, but at least I got information that informed my, um, my thinking. I actually, I have lots of advisors. They don't know they're my advisors because, you know, I speak five minutes to them here and there. Um, but um, so that, that's what works work for me is getting a bunch of information, make my decision and then go, go forward. And I, I think that was to me the most useful as a founder was um, getting that that flux of data coming in you know now i love interacting with with founders i get on seriously i get on the phone with them we spend 15 minutes i know that i can save them six months of work and it's it's little thing uh, but once you have done it once uh, it's obvious after the fact but that nugget of information is so valuable because it enables you to to move faster. So that, that's how I see my role as, as a funnel advisor. I, I don't have the time to be on, on the formal board, but I do have 15 minutes here and there, no problem. What were the criteria that made you decide that someone was worth segueing from an informal advisor into a formal advisor? Well, for, for the board of directors, when you fund your company, you don't have a lot of choices because a lot of uh, a lot of the board members are investors, but th- that is a lot more limiting than being able to make a phone call to, to to someone. And so that's why it's very important to choose your import- in- investors wisely. I remember the first time I was fundraising, I was thinking, doesn't matter as long as they have money, I take it. But actually, I- I'm so glad that we had some really good investors early on because I, I realize now that. Actually, getting the money is the easy part. That, that is a commodity. The, the hard part is having investors that will bring some added value. And so investors do diligence on you. And you should do diligence on them. Make sure that uh, before you sign a term sheet, before you bring someone on your board, you've talked to people and not, not the names they give you. You need to find them, them on your own. So going back to your question for, for board, you get to choose who the investors are. Uh, so that, that's who makes it on. And then on the scientific advisory board, you need people that are super good at the science and because that, that's their role is to advise you on the science and, and also uh, people that have the gravitas when um, at your next run where investors are going to call them and say, what do you think? Is that going to work? You need people that have the, the credibility uh, to, to when they say yes or no, their voice carries weight. So that, that, that's who you want on your on your scientific advisory board. 
you don't want to choose your friend. You, know, you, you want to choose the people that, that have that scientific gravitas and, and long expertise to, to really tell you when, when you're going the wrong way or to provide the insight uh, when you really are stuck. And then people that are going to be highly respected in that due diligence phone call. So you said you love getting on the 15-minute calls with founders and helping them accelerate their progress. If you were to advise someone on how to get your advice, do you have any tips on how to get 15 minutes of your time or someone else like you? 100% of the people that uh, won the lottery bought a ticket, right? So the, the first thing is, you know, you, you have to try. You know, the cold call is very hard. The cold email, you know, most people, you know, just, it go, just goes to the track because you, you, nobody has the time. But um, uh, for me, when I want to talk to someone, uh, I try to find someone that I know that knows them and that that warm introduction is always way more effective than, than the cold calling. So you know, if you if you message me on LinkedIn, I'm going to sit in, in six months because I never read my LinkedIn message. But if you get to someone that I know, it's probably a bit more likely that, that I'll pay attention. And it's true for me, but I think it's true for investors as well. I never had an investor answer my call email just it just doesn't happen but um, if you get the warm intro from someone you get attention emily it has been invaluable having you as a guest with us today thank you so much for joining us thank you so much and i hope it will inspire a lot of founders to take the plunge uh, if i can do it you guys can do it too and girls some of them will be twist customers and so if you need dna we'll be there for you if you haven't yet signed up for our Petri newsletter, go to our website, petri.bio, to stay connected. 